during the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. Our next guest cared for some of the first patients in the United States that contracted COVID-19. Dr. Nick Mark is an attending ICU physician at Swedish Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, and is also the founder of One Pager ICU. I recently spoke with Dr. Mark and asked him to share his harrowing personal and professional journey of being one of the first physicians in our nation to confront and battle this deadly virus. Additionally, Dr. Mark and I discuss his new organization, One Pager ICU, and the inspiring outcomes already happening for care teams worldwide due to him and his team's mission with their work. I look forward to having you a part of this powerful, moving, and inspiring conversation so we can rally around Dr. Mark and his mission as we work together to defeat COVID-19. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. Mark, thank you for meeting up on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Well, Nick, I'm looking forward to this discussion, especially given the inspiring note I received from your friend and a colleague of mine here at Olive, Rohan D'Souza. We have so much to cover. I'm looking forward to it. But before we dive into this discussion today, Nick, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please take a moment and visit passionatepioneers.com in order to share your feedback and ideas. Simply scroll to the comment section at the bottom of each posted episode. And lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, Nick, let me frame it up a bit because we do have a lot to cover, some important information, some important and incredibly inspiring initiatives that you are leading right in the midst of this pandemic as now we're starting to see a fall surge amongst us in our communities across the nation. But I want you to take our community back. You're based in Seattle. Obviously, as we now know with the history behind us, Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, an epicenter of when COVID-19 came to our shores. Can you give us a little bit of understanding of your work as a provider in the Seattle market? You know, give us a little bit of that background and then take us into when COVID hit your community. So I'm an intensivist. I'm an ICU doctor. You know, I care for the sickest patients in the hospital in the intensive care unit. And I work here in Seattle, Washington. Back in January, my youngest kid was born. So I took a few weeks off. Our first case in Seattle was January 15th, but we really started to get more cases over the next few weeks. So just as I was coming back to work in the ICU was when the pandemic was really starting to happen. So back in... February and early March is when we really started to get hit hard by it. We were seeing patients who were very sick. They were on ventilators. They needed medications to support their blood pressure. They were on dialysis. They were about as sick as patients can be in the ICU. And there were a lot of them. You know, normally our ICUs will have empty beds. Every single bed was full. We were spilling over into other parts of the hospital. We were pulling staff, you know, trying desperately to get enough people to care for all of these patients. 
And it's a stressful job working in the ICU, but there was a different kind of stress and anxiety back in those days, which was just the absolute uncertainty of this. This was a disease that none of us had ever seen before. No one in the U.S. had ever seen before. No one in the world had ever seen before a few months. So there was a real information vacuum. We really did not know what to expect and what we were dealing with. One thing that I've always found kind of a good way to deal with stress and uncertainty is to learn as much as I can. There's a great quote by John Glenn where he said, you fear the least what you know the most about. And so one of these night shifts when I was working in the ICU, I had a, an hour or two of downtime and I just decided I was going to, you know, I was going to write down all the things that I'd been reading and the things that I'd been seeing about COVID. And back in those days, I think this was maybe the first week in March or the last week in February, there wasn't a lot. There were, you know, a couple dozen scientific papers. There were no treatment guidelines. A few hospitals, including mine, had protocols, but there just wasn't a lot. It was possible for one human being to go through and read everything there was to know about COVID. So, you know, I basically combined what I'd seen and what I read, put a handwritten document, one piece of paper, took a photo of it, tweeted it, came home, went to bed. I woke up a few hours later and the post had like thousands of retweets and likes. So I thought, hmm, okay, people find this valuable. So let me go back and take this handwritten thing and turn it into a typed up document. And then over the next six, eight weeks, basically as anything new came out about COVID or as I learned something new about it from my personal experience, I just made an updated version. And so I think it got up to about version 2.7 or something as we progressively learned more. And this is back in the early days of the pandemic when we were learning more every minute. And before we dive in more there, Nick, because I want to take a pause, because I definitely want to dive into what is now called your initiative here with One Pager ICU. We're going to learn more of where to find it, how we can get involved, and all of the important work happening there that you continue to move forward. But I feel the need to take a timeout because we have a leader like you on the front lines experiencing this in real time. And I feel a bit that our society at large doesn't realize the magnitude at hand. Yes, we can see the numbers on the news and yes, we can see the cases continuing to increase, but until it hits me directly and until I see it happening with me or my own family, it really isn't resonating. And I'll be honest with you, I'm gonna get on my personal soapbox for a moment. It's driving me mad, Nick. It is really upsetting to me that we aren't taking this seriously for a number of reasons, political or otherwise. Before we dive more into your efforts with One Pager ICU, can you give us some real talk? What has it been like staring those patients in the eye? How have they been dealing with this and their family? Give us that real visceral reaction that you've had as a provider and what it means to contract this virus. Yeah, I share your frustration that we're not taking this seriously as a country. So, I mean, my training, you know, taught me how to care for the sickest patients, but nothing prepared me for this pandemic in the sense that I never had to confront my colleagues getting sick, worrying that I would get sick. You know, it's one thing to deal with the stress of caring for patients and their loved ones. It's another thing to worry about your own well-being and worry that you could die caring for those patients. So that's been one dramatic difference. 
Another thing about this is, you know, you have to understand that there's a lot of things that we can do to keep people alive. We have amazing technology with ventilators, with ECMO machines, with dialysis machines. We can support people through a lot, but it doesn't always work. You know, people die despite our best efforts sometimes. And it's also extremely invasive. And the best way to prevent COVID is from putting you in the ICU is to not get COVID in the first place. And so even though we have all these great high-tech machines that can keep you alive, the best way to keep you alive is probably a two-cent piece of cloth or fabric that you put over your mouth. You know, simple, low-tech things work really, really well. And from the patient's perspective, did you experience times with your patients that you've never had in your career, you know, in regards to them, I don't know how else to say the staring down death, right? Not being able to see their family. What was that like? So there are some really unique challenges to caring for people with COVID-19. One of the things that I always like to do when I'm in the ICU is encourage family to spend time with the patient as much as possible. You know, loved ones can do things that we really can't. If you're a patient and your loved one is holding your hand and saying your name, familiar voice, that's comfort. There's no medication that can provide that kind of comfort. So my practice in the ICU in general is to have family members be as involved as they're able to be because they can do a lot to make the patient more comfortable as they're getting through critical illness. One of the biggest challenges of COVID-19 is we haven't been able to do that. Not only has COVID-19 been profoundly isolating for everybody in quarantine, but it's very isolating for patients in the hospital. In many cases, they can't have visitors. If they do have visitors, their visitors have to wear PPE, which might make it hard to recognize them. Because the virus is so transmissible, we put patients in negative pressure rooms. So there's a fan, which is cleaning the air frequently, but it's also very loud. So even if a loved one is able to come in and wear PPE and stand with them, they may not be able to hear them. So there's a lot of barriers to providing compassionate critical care because of COVID. In the early days, we had a no visitor policy. Almost every hospital did. We've since relaxed that a bit. But, you know, it's a balancing act. The last thing you want is for somebody's loved one to come in to be with somebody who's ill and get sick themselves. So we have to make sure that they're safe. And the other thing is, is that the last thing you want is for staff to get sick. So it's not uncommon. I've seen this many times where there's a family where three or four people are all living together. All of them get sick. One or two of them have really minimal symptoms. One of them has more serious symptoms, but they're able to stay at home. And one of them is hospitalized or even placed in the ICU critically ill. And kind of shows you one of the challenges of COVID, which is that the reason why it's spreading out of control is that it has this range of severity. There's people who are asymptomatic who are spreading it, and then there's people who could easily die from it who are critically ill in the ICU. But one of the challenges is is that we don't want the people who are asymptomatic spreaders or the people who have mild illness to come into the hospital and get our staff sick. So what that's led to is that's led to a situation where many of our patients are forced to see their family over FaceTime or Zoom. And in some cases, you know, their family can't come into the hospital even if they're dying. So they have to say goodbye to a loved one over FaceTime or Zoom, which you know, is not my preferred way to practice medicine. I like to, you know, have families together at the bedside whenever possible. I want to turn the focus to you as a frontline provider, in my mind, a hero. 
here you were beginning of 2020, toddler at home, I think a three-year-old and also a newborn. Why did you feel compelled to go all in on serving the sick in your community with this toddler and newborn at home? Because this is what I've trained to do. You know, I've spent a long time learning how to be a really good ICU doctor. And there's a need for ICU doctors right now. You know, I think as much as it would be safe to kind of stay at home, I just felt like this is what I've trained for. This is what I'm good at. You know, this is something where I can really make a difference every single day. So I just felt I had to be there. And by the way, when COVID struck New York City, I couldn't physically go there. I had obligations here, but I volunteered doing telemedicine there. So I was able to kind of remotely connect into some of these improvised ICUs there and round with residents, you know, myself over Zoom. So it doesn't mean that you have to physically be in a place to help, though. I mean, that's most of what I do. But I think if you have an expertise that can benefit people, you should apply it. It would be a shame to spend, you know, 10, 15 years learning how to do this and then not do it at a moment of need. It's incredibly commendable, Nick, and it's just so awe-inspiring to me. I have one more personal question for you. Let me set the stage, and then we're going to dive into this incredibly important work with One Pager ICU, but I want to focus one more question towards you, and let me set the stage. This podcast has been all in for now over a year on openly and proudly discussing mental health and well-being and the notion of wellness, and not just on the physical side, but our mental well-being which is now further exacerbated with this pandemic. And you can answer this how you like, but how have you or your colleagues held up mentally, emotionally, psychologically during these times? And again, you can focus that answer either on yourself, you can go as deep as you want, or you can talk about your colleagues more broadly. But this is a very important personal topic to me. How have you been holding up? How have your colleagues been holding up? That's a really important question. And I think You know, the health system is really struggling dealing with both the magnitude and the duration of the pandemic. You know, I think human beings are good in general at dealing with acute stress, right? Acute stress can sharpen your focus. It can make you better at your job. So when I'm resuscitating a patient, I'm stressed. I'm a little bit anxious, but I can apply that and I can move, you know, faster and smoother. But when you're stressed all day, every day, that chronic stress, that's really maladaptive. And I think that's when people really start to experience burnout. That's when people start to, you know, think about kind of big picture questions and think about, do I really want to be doing this? And they leave their job. I can also tell you that, you know, my wife and I had a lot of conversations early in the pandemic about what we would do if I got sick. You know, if I was really sick, we made plans for, if my wife and I were both sick, who would care for our kids? That's not something that I've ever really had to do before. You know, I mean, I guess I made a will when my kids were born, but I never thought about it in those immediate terms. The other thing that, I mean, I found kind of disconcerting about this was usually when I'm about to do a procedure, I'll take a few seconds to sort of kind of still my thoughts, you know, take a couple yoga breaths and get really calm and focused. And I remember one of the first times that I was intubating a patient with COVID-19. So intubation is when you give the person medication to make them unconscious, to make them asleep and to relax their muscles. And then you put a breathing tube in. This is an incredibly high risk procedure with COVID though, because when you put the breathing tube in, virus particles spray out all over the room. 
And there were many reports of healthcare providers getting sick or dying after doing this procedure. And I remember one time as I was preparing to intubate a patient with COVID-19, I took a couple of breaths and I was just thinking, wow, I'm actually worried about myself in this moment. Like I could die from this if my PPE fails, if the pump that's, you know, attached to my paperhood that's cleaning the air, if the battery dies on that mid-procedure. And that's not a thought that I've ever had at work before, you know, that I'm in danger. And feeling that definitely changes it. And it makes it much harder to go to work if you're worried about your own well-being. I know I have colleagues who have decided to move out of medicine, colleagues who are dealing with PTSD from those early days. There are people who have, you know, sadly taken their own lives because of these feelings. So I think there's a pandemic we're not talking about, and there's a pandemic we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, which is the cost to all of the healthcare workers who have cared for these patients. I don't think we're even beginning to really see how much weight is on the shoulders, especially of people like bedside nurses who are in the ICU room with these patients all day, every day. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Nick, and being so honest and and transparent with where you and your colleagues are. I just want you to know you have an open invitation to this podcast at any point that we want to come back and talk about this specific topic. I am all in on it, and I think it's more important than ever that we continue to demystify and really shine a light in these dark corners that for some reason are around and centered on mental health. So, yeah. Thank you for making that part of the conversation and for normalizing healthcare providers talking about their own mental health. I think there's a bit of a stigma in healthcare to sort of be strong and silent. The stigma is if you talk about what your own mental health challenges are, that you know, you're not up to it, you're not strong enough. And I think that's a stigma that we need to remove. One of my goals and missions with my work is to literally flip that upside down. It's actually the more we talk about it, the stronger we're going to be, right? I literally look at it upside down and I am going to continue to commit my platform and my voice and my energy and mission towards this. It's more important than ever. So, And, you know, and the other thing to think about too, is that I think looking ahead, this is not one season pandemic. This is a pandemic that we're going to be dealing with for at least another year, maybe two. And burnout is catastrophic if you think about just continuing to provide medical care. A friend of mine wrote an article that was published two days ago in the Harvard Business Review, and I had no idea. But so 50% of doctors and nurses in some studies, or almost 50%, experience burnout. And the cost in terms of turnover is over $4 billion a year when you think about what it costs to replace those people. But when you think about that was before the pandemic, when you think about during the pandemic, well, that's going to be much worse, first of all. And second of all, there aren't people to replace them. Every single hospital is dealing with turnover. There are not enough doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists to go around. So burnout now is especially catastrophic because we just, you know, we need these people. We need everybody to be happy and healthy and content in their jobs if we're going to keep doing this for another six months. You know, back in, I think it was April or May, I did an interview with the New England Journal and the reporter asked me, where do you think we are in this? And I said, you know, we're on mile two of a marathon. 
And I feel like maybe we're on like mile 10 or 12 now, but we've got a lot in front of us and we have to stay healthy if we're going to get there. We do. And thank you for, you know, being committed to it as well and offering your platform to shine that light as well. So with that, let's go back to where we were diving into at the front end of this podcast, because this work is incredibly important. I want our community to get involved and to leverage these incredible assets that you're putting out there. You started talking about you wanted to share your learnings. Again, there you were, one of the first providers in our country on the front lines when this pandemic hit. And you started creating these one pagers, these summaries. And then, like you said, you put them on social media and holy cow, the power of Twitter. Unbelievable. Can you take us through a little bit more there? And then we'll talk about where we can find it, how we can get involved, and then we'll say our goodbyes. Great. So, yeah, I started off, the first one pager was about COVID-19. And then I iterated on that. And I think in order to understand, I mean, frankly, I was surprised by how popular this was. You know, for me, I was just sharing my notes. I figured, you know, maybe there'll be a few dozen other ICU doctors who find this useful. But it turned out there was a much larger audience for it. And I think that comes down to a couple of things. One is to go back to that John Glenn quote, you fear the least what you know the most about. And we didn't know anything about COVID in the early days. And so therefore, it was absolutely terrifying. I think knowledge is power. So learning about something is very important. And there just was this vacuum of information about COVID in the early days of the pandemic, especially. I think the other thing too is this highlights one of the weaknesses of the traditional medical education model. So the the classic way that you do this in med ed is through articles and book chapters. And, you know, this has been the way we've done it since Osler, you know, for a hundred plus years. This tends to be, you know, kind of text-based, information-dense ways of communicating information where one person writes it, a couple people peer review it, and then a few months later or a few years later, somebody reads it. And, you know, the joke about medical textbooks is if you read a medical textbook, you're reading the -the state-of-the-art knowledge five years ago because that's how long it takes to go through the process of collecting all of that. I think in a pandemic where the information is changing so quickly, you need to deviate from that model. And so I think some of the things that have made the one-pager format really popular with people is, first of all, it's graphical. So it's not just text, which makes it a little bit easier to absorb. Taking complex topics, but trying to sort of pick bite-sized pieces so that it can be conveyed concisely, cleanly, and ideally visually. Another thing is, you know, the traditional medical model is paywalls. You have to subscribe to this journal to read this article. And I very much didn't want to do that. I wanted to make the information just freely available. So everything is open source. And I think that's been very useful because if somebody wants to take one of these and, you know, make adjustments to it, they're free to do so. The only two stipulations are they should acknowledge where it came from and they have to make their improved version freely available to. They have to pay it forward. So it's more of a Wikipedia model than the traditional medical journal model. The other thing is crowdsourcing. So traditionally, medical education is one person writes it, a few people peer review it, and then it's distributed. One of the nice things about putting stuff on social media or on the internet is you can have lots of people helping you. And so, for example, that original COVID one-pager was ultimately translated into over 20 languages. That's so cool. Yeah, which is awesome. I mean, I never would have thought that I would be connected to people 
all over the world willing to do this for me. But when there was a need, people volunteered, people who were doctors and nurses, you know, who understood the medicine enough to translate it, stepped up. And it's pretty amazing to see that. The, you, thing, the last thing about crowdsourcing, which is really exciting to me, is, you know, a couple peer reviewers is a good model, but it's an imperfect model. A lot of flawed stuff gets through. Having a much larger pool of thousands of people giving feedback is a great way to iterate and improve on something. And what's also amazing is like, I feel like if I share a one pager and there's a typo, I find out within a few minutes sometimes and it's a little mortifying, but it's also a great thing, you know, that there are eagle eyed people giving you that feedback in almost real time. Do you also feel that this, you know, one thing we hear about a lot, especially in medicine, right, is there's so much information being created, content being created on a global scale that we literally are drowning in it. Do you also agree that these one pagers are helping the frontline heroes, all of you, you providers to quickly get to the information and to be able to quickly make some actions because of that information distilled down in a one pager, you know, to really kind of fight against this notion of drowning in so much information? Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's so many resources out there to learn from. You can, you know, can read the primary literature, you can read studies, you can read textbooks, you can read online sources like up to date. There's many places to go. Sometimes it's nice to have sort of a quick place where you can learn about a topic and then it can refer you to those if you want to learn more. You know, a lot of the one pagers that I've made are really geared at helping people who are new to the ICU understand how stuff works there. So especially in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of my colleagues who are maybe internal medicine doctors or maybe surgeons, but not critical care trained, were being asked to help out in the ICU. And I wanted to create resources for them so they could be more comfortable with things like ventilators and other like devices that we use. So I got to ask the most important question. Have you upped your illustration game? Oh, well, I mean, up until this point, every illustration has been drawn by me. I, I love I'm it. thinking about the future and I'm thinking about, you know, if I can find some graphic artists who will help me, I would love to up my illustration game further. But you know, I like to draw. And so, you know, I've been doing more pictures. People don't seem to find my illustrations, you know, so, so, so awful. So I'll keep doing them until people tell me to stop. Well, Nick, I'm going to tell you right now, do not come calling on my end. I'm not your guy. I am. I, <laughs> I struggle with a stick figure. So know that I cannot be of any help there at all. But hey, all joking aside, this is powerful work and so needed because like you said, things are moving so fast. Where can we find this? Where can our community get involved? How can they add to it? Maybe give us some touch points, whether it be social media handles, websites, or otherwise, and we'll start wrapping it up. So the website is onepagericu.com. And I actually own, there's a couple different domains there. So if you type in numeral one or letters one, it'll all get you to the same point. So onepagericu.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Nick M. Mark. Those are probably the two best places. As I'm thinking about, you know, I mean, this whole endeavor is, only eight, nine months old. So as I think about the future, you know, I'd like to keep doing more of these. I'd like to collaborate with other ICU doctors to make more of them. And I'd like to find people like graphic artists who can help in improve the quality of them. So any, certainly anybody with those skill sets, I'd love to be in touch and, you know, maybe work together. Absolutely. And of course, all of those touch points will be listed in our episode notes. So if you're listening from your favorite podcast player, Simply scroll down and click on through. We'll include those in the episode notes as well. Or 
You can head over to passionatepioneers.com, our free online community, where you can also leave comments for Nick's episode that will be included over again at passionatepioneers.com. So thank you for sharing that, Nick. We'll be sure to get those uh, listed out so everybody can find and, of course, more importantly, add to it. This is open source. Let's continue to rally around Nick and his efforts and build on this as a community type of effort. Oh, and one last ask, by the way, that's a great point. Go for it. If you speak languages other than English and you'd like to translate, that would be very valuable too. So feel free to reach out if you want to translate one of these or more than one of these one pagers into another language. Uh, There's always a need for that. I love it. We do have quite a following outside of the U.S. as well. So to our OUS community members, please, if you can be of help there for Nick and his team, that would be wonderful. So, well... Nick, this has been such an inspiring conversation. I'm so appreciative of you taking your time, newborns at home, working on the front lines, getting these assets out with these one-pagers. I know you're a busy man, but I can hear it through and through. You are very passionate and dedicated to moving the health of our nation forward. And we look forward to continuing to do that with you together. So for now, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. We look forward to continuing to uplift your incredible work. But for now, thank you so much, Nick. Thank you for having me, Mike. And thanks for all you do advocating for the healthcare workers who are on the front lines. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.